Welcome to Stratford Lutheran's Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex, and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series, and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon. continue our journey through the book of Genesis in our Bible series here. Uh, we will stop for a few weeks looking at the life of Joseph. This is one of Jacob's sons as he will finish out our time in Genesis and we will do so before Lent begins. So we are in Genesis chapter 37 and I'll begin in the 12th verse and read a portion but not all of this section. Now his brothers went to the pasture, their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are, you, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him with, from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. If you haven't uh, picked up this theme running through the book of Genesis by now, it's that there was a lot of dysfunctional families that we encounter in our time so far. We've seen the 
Cain and Abel with the feud of the brothers. We've seen all sorts of different uh, happenings between the descendants of Abraham. And now, obviously, we have Joseph, who is at odds with his brothers. And he's at odds with his brothers because of some dreams that he told them. It's interesting, as I was thinking about this sermon this week and how there's this essential hatred that seems to be brewing in his brothers against Joseph. And I got to thinking, what other sort of historical moments can we really pick on? Is this kind of dysfunctionality only really centered in in the book of Genesis, or will we see this theme carried on throughout the time of man because we are sinners? And in that, we have a lot of anger and hatred and despisement towards other people. And we even have it in our own families where we have disagreements over all sorts of things. But as I started to survey this, I I was drawn to a few points in history, one of them being uh, the Egyptian rulers. And I won't go too deep into this because of the, the grotesque nature of their stories, but one that drew to my attention was Cleopatra. And, and I started to read her story, and I was just in shock of how much bloodshed occurred in her family, from conspiring to murder her to her having other people assassinated. I was really shocked by this. But as I dug in deeper, I realized that this was a common theme for the Egyptian rulers, that fathers would end up killing their sons or sons would kill their fathers, mothers would kill their children to try and take power. It was all about the throne. And so it was whatever one could do to assert themselves into power, they would do so. And so families are just crushed and destroyed because of somebody's thirst for power. And this wasn't just centered in Egypt. We move on in time, and we could go and look at the European kings and queens through the history. And we see the same sort of battle. Brothers coming against brothers. Sons coming against fathers. The wives going against their children. This bloodshed is just not encapsulated to the royal families in the history of the world. In fact, we can read just about at any point that even in the regular everyday lives, we have people who are dysfunctional. We have families that are in chaos and in their turmoil. They disagree over everything, it seems. Whether it's political beliefs, religious beliefs, economic beliefs, or societal beliefs, we find division almost at every road. And it really feels like even more so today, while we may not be striking out to kill our family members, we certainly do kill them with our words. We certainly do stand, as Jesus told us, that if we call our brother a fool, we have committed murder in our hearts. And it seems like today people want to be offended for just about anything, no matter what the topic is. And therefore, we find ourselves having to walk on eggshells around certain people in our lives because we don't want to offend them. Well, today, 
I might offend somebody because I'm going to give you the gospel. And that gospel is offensive. People don't like it. People don't like to be told that they need a savior. Division comes from preaching the truth. More so, it comes when you stand for the truth. When you do not budge upon what God's word says. So let us look at this early point of Joseph's life. Up until this point, we don't have much history to Joseph other than just these few verses earlier in chapter 37. And the opening to chapter 37 is a dream that Joseph has. In fact, it's two dreams that Joseph has. And we'll get into that very briefly as we move into our sermon. But as we come across this, Joseph is one of Jacob's sons, as I had mentioned. And in that, he is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. So you better all memorize those quiz next Sunday. <laughs> But it's what, it, what, what is fascinating to me is how Joseph takes up the rest of Genesis. But yet, it's not from Joseph's line that the Messiah comes. It's from Judah. It's not from Joseph. But yet, Joseph plays such an intricate role in our remaining time in Genesis. Because Joseph, in his entire life is a type of Jesus. We'll get into that as we move through our series here now on Joseph. So we're met with this event of Joseph seeking out his brothers by his father's command, and he's going to try and assist them, but finds out that they are going to kill him. They are conspiring to kill him. But as I mentioned these dreams early on, this is why his brothers did not like him. Because if we read the dreams, Joseph is telling them, in a nutshell, at some point you will bow to me. I'm the youngest, but you will bow to me, all of you. I will be over you in some capacity. I will have power over you. And his brothers didn't like that. His brothers despised that. Now there's some commentaries that say that he was gloating in this, saying that I will be powerful and you have no say in it. But what we will see as we unpack his life is how God uses Joseph for very specific purposes. In fact, it will be because of Joseph that the Israelites end up in Egypt. And it will be because of Joseph that there's this gap of 400 years between Joseph and Moses. And then we have the nation of Israel blossoming in captivity in Egypt, and then Moses rescuing them. All because of Joseph. So as we dig into this dysfunctional family, 
I find it interesting as this time falls in place with the rest of what we've read in Genesis. God uses the unqualified, the undeserving, to carry out his plan. God goes to these same individuals and gives them this promise. And he does so over and over, even despite the fact that they lie, cheat, deceive, kill one another. God continues to come to them. So as much as I'd just love to spend the next few hours surveying the life of Joseph, we won't have all of that time today, but we will spend today and the remaining four Sundays before Lent doing so. And as we start to look at the life of Joseph, we begin to see his struggles come to the surface. From the very beginning, his brothers do not like him, and they seek ways to kill him. And more so because, as we meet Joseph, he has those dreams where he exalts himself over his brothers. In this context, dreams are viewed much differently than what we would expect today. I find it interesting sometimes when you wake early in the morning and you try to remember a dream you had, and sometimes they're extraordinarily visual and vibrant, and, and you can tell all of the details of it, and other times you're like, I don't know why I was talking to that cow for five minutes. <laughs> Dreams are an interesting concept, but if we go to Scripture and, and look at dreams that individuals have, they're much deeper than just the average common dream that we have. They're vivid. They're visions. And I would venture to say that this isn't just a dream that Joseph is having to where he thinks at some point he's going to be more powerful than his brothers, but it's a vision given to him by God. This will happen, and your brothers will come to you in need. Here's what Luther says on dreams. He says, so far as dreams are concerned, there, are, there is the well-known rule that such revelations must be scrutinized with respect to their, their relation to the word and to faith. If they are not in harmony with the word and, or they destroy faith, they are from Satan. Today we ought not to expect God to reveal himself in dreams since we have the full revelation of Scripture. So what Luther is saying in this context is in these dreams, we might get glimpses or visions even today of something that might happen. But we have to take that and put it under the lens of Scripture. Is this promised to us by God's word? If not, then we should discard it. And as Luther goes on to say that because we have our Bible in its closed capacity, and the canon closed, we should not expect new revelations from God. Because everything we have and everything we need is found in these 66 books. But if we take this concept, we can now look back and understand in Scripture that these dreams do have purpose. They have meaning. They have a word from God, a promise from God, that something will happen. And since God has fully revealed himself, we should not expect anything new or fresh. 
But see now as we're surveying the time of Joseph, the Bible isn't even written yet. In fact, it doesn't get written for another quite a few hundred years when Moses writes. Moses is the author of Genesis. And so Joseph is experiencing God in the realest and most vivid form. And so I would venture to say that this isn't just a dream but a vision, and one that will, in fact, come true. Joseph, too, knowing that children should honor and serve their parents, as Moses indicates in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we see that jo uh, Jacob rebukes Joseph for predicting this particular dream. Because it's not just his brothers that he angers by these dreams, it's his father, Jacob. And, in fact, it's his mother as well. Jacob rebukes Joseph for these dreams because according to the hierarchy of this culture, being the youngest born son, you don't really get much inheritance. In fact, you don't get much of anything. It all goes to the oldest son. So we start to see this division take place in this chapter in Genesis. And as I ponder this division that occurs, this hatred and animosity against Joseph from his brothers, more or less, I can't help but think how this continues on through the ages. I preached a sermon quite a few years ago now on a particular passage in Luke in the 12th chapter. And in this passage, Jesus famously says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Those are pretty harsh words by Jesus himself. Why is Jesus saying that he doesn't come to bring peace, but division? Well, the truth is, is that Scripture divides. We see that countless times through, throughout the Scripture that God is the one who is sovereign in election. And more importantly, when Jesus does return, we see that those who believe will be granted eternal life, and those who do not will face damnation. Matthew 24 and 25 give us this in-depth dive into the end of times, and we see how God continues at the very end of it to separate the sheep from the goats. But before we even get to that time period, who knows how long we are from it, we still face this division being given to us in today's world. We have to face it in our own immediate families within our co-workers, within our friends, within any aspect of our lives, there is division given because of the gospel of Jesus. The truth is that Jesus does this. He causes brothers to come against one another. 
And I personally, I can speak from experience on this. I didn't grow up in the Christian household. But when I became a Christian, it caused ripples in my family. To some extent, I still feel those ripples today. That division is real because I stand on the word of God. Some in my immediate family don't approve of that. They don't respect that. They don't, they don't even inquire about why. They just have some sort of anger and hatred towards me. And I don't want to sit up here and make it a pity party about myself, but as I can explain in this sermon that it is true because I have experienced it. I've seen other people experience it. And I know that this is what happens when we become Christians, there's going to be many who are opposed to that. When we stand for Christ, the world is going to stand against us. Jesus tells us flat out, you will be hated for my name. If you're a Christian, you don't expect all of the gifts and pleasures of the world. You expect persecution and suffering. Standing on the truth will cause you to be hated. It will cause you to be outcast in your circles and alienated by those who do not believe. And this is just sadly facts. Here in our story, the fact is, this is exactly what Joseph faced. If he continues to believe these visions of this dream that he had, then he will be outcast by his family. They conspire to kill him. They throw him in this pit. But thankfully, Reuben steps in and says... No, let's not kill him. Let's see if he can rescue himself. Then at the very end of chapter 37, I think this is probably where it gets even more ruthless by his brothers. They don't welcome him home or, or try and reconcile. No, they turn and sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. They sell their own brother into slavery. Now, I would be amazed if any of us in the West have ever experienced that type of persecution. I would venture to say it's probably just a fleeting thought in our mind. We read the text and we see it happen, but I've never experienced that deep of persecution. Yes, I've experienced division. Yes, I've had people come against me because of my faith, but I've never been sold into slavery. But yet, this does happen around the world. I've mentioned it a few times last year, but more or less in China, you're encouraged to turn Christians in. Even your own family. They will reward you if you obey this. Can you fathom that? Turning your own son or daughter, your own parents, your siblings, over to the government because they profess Christ and you don't. And that angers you. And you get a nice little reward for it. Does that stir anger in your mind, in your heart? Resentment? It may not happen here in the United States, but yet in Canada, it's happening to some capacity. Pastors are being actively thrown into jail because they stand against the mandates for the COVID that the government has imposed upon them. 
Meanwhile, all sorts of other businesses are open and doing whatever they want. Churches are being targeted. And pastors are actively being thrown into jail because they're being turned over and turned against by various people in their communities. And again, they reward people who turn on Christians and hold services against their restrictions in Canada. We could say that that will never happen here in the United States. We've got our wonderful Constitution to protect us, and we've got all sorts of rights that are given. But in all honesty, this very well could happen. It may not happen in our lifetime, but maybe in our children's or their life or their children's lifetime. Just as well as empires have risen and fallen over time, so will the United States. And as Christians, we find ourselves alienated from this. Because, see, we're simply pilgrims in this life. While we may say we live in America and we enjoy the benefits of being here and preaching an open word and going to Scripture and cultivating what God has said, we know that we are simply pilgrims passing through. And so our allegiance shouldn't be to any particular country or any particular person, but simply to God and to Jesus. So as we spend the next few weeks looking over the life of Joseph, we will continue to see how his, brother, their, his brother's anger will turn into good. God will use his, this dysfunctional family to establish the nation of Israel. God will use these moments, the times where Joseph was sold into slavery, to build and save all of Joseph's family. And as we will discover as well that Joseph is more or less a type of Jesus to come. In that, we have seen how Adam was a type. Paul tells us that in his writings, that Adam was a type of Jesus. We see how Abraham was a type. All of these individuals have some significance, but they ultimately point us to Christ. And while we see the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12 being sharp and, and, and often discomforting, we know that this is the assurance that God gives us, that even amidst our own lives where we see and experience division, we know that this is the God that we serve, one who will come and sift the wheat from the tares, one who will separate the sheep from the goats, one who promises eternal life and salvation to all who believe. And so while we may experience this division in our lives, the comforting thought is that we can continue to share the gospel with those. For those who oppose us, we can continue to tell them, that's all right, Jesus forgives you. And you do so over and over. And that's all we can do. And we allow the Holy Spirit to come and work in those lives. Jesus Christ forgives you. Yes, you're a sinner, but Jesus forgives you. Jesus forgives you for the hatred you have against me. Jesus forgives you for what you've done against me. Because see, if we go through Scripture, the only sin that's not forgivable is disbelief. 
So while we might be angry with our brother or sister or family members, while we might commit sins throughout our lives, all of that was nailed to the cross some 2,000 years ago. Every single sin that we commit in our past, our present, and our future, wiped clean. All because we can go and echo what Paul tells us in Romans, that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the grave. We believe that you will be saved. And that's the message we take into our families. That's the message we take to our coworkers, the message we take into our communities, that Jesus Christ forgives you. And we just keep shouting that over and over and over again. That is the gospel message. It is divisive. It does cause division. There will be separation, the wheat and the tares, the sheep from the goats. But this is the God we serve, one who operates under a promise that for those who believe, you will have eternal life and salvation. Amen.